Chapter Twenty Two of Mystery of the Sea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Mystery of the Sea by Bram Stoker. Chapter Twenty Two. Crom Castle. When I rejoined Marjorie, we went up the high road and then turned off by the byway which took us round innumerable slopes and mounds so characteristic of this part of Aberdeen. The entire county, seen from high places, looks bare and open, but it has its hills and hollows in endless variety. From the crossroad we turned up another and still another, till I lost my bearings entirely the part of the country where we now were was a sort of desolation of cultivation endless low hills clad with fields of wheat and barley with never a house to be seen except some far-off cottage or the homestead of a laird perched on the top of a hill at last we entered through an open gate with broken pillars still bearing the remains of some armorial device in statuary there was an avenue fringed with tall trees on either side and beyond a broad belt of undergrowth the avenue wound round and round in an endless series of curves from the gate where we entered was a thick close wood nearly a quarter of a mile in width here the trees stood so close and their locking branches made such a screen that it was quite gloomy within here too the road was made in perpetual curves so that it was not possible to see far ahead indeed i remarked to marjorie as we rode along no wonder you choose this as a place to hide in it looks as if it was made for concealment it is a regular rosamond's bower when we passed through the wood we came out on a great piece of level ground with a wide mound some twenty feet high in the midst of it on this was built of granite a crenellated castle it was not very high but extended wide in a square with a low arched doorway in front of us through which it might be possible to drive with care the doorway was closed by two gates first a massive network of interlocking steel bars of seemingly foreign workmanship and secondly great gates of oak fortified with steel bands and massive bosses of hammered iron before going in marjorie took me right round the castle and i saw that it was the same on all four sides it was built by the points of the compass but there was no gateway except on one side the ordinary way of entering was by a more modern door on the south side from inside the castle it was not possible to see anywhere beyond the wood even from the stone roof made for defence where marjorie took me it was only possible to get a glimpse through the tree-tops here and there of round-topped hills yellow with ripening grain or crowned with groves of scanty wind-swept pine trees altogether it was as gloomy a place as i had ever seen it was cut off altogether from the outer world one might remain in it for a lifetime unknown inside it was if possible more gloomy small rooms almost everywhere except the great hall and one room at the top facing the south side which lay just under the roof and which was lined with old oak here there were quite a number of windows such as marjorie had described all of them though wide on the inner side narrowed to mere slits on the outer in castles and houses built like this for defence it did not do to allow opportunities to an attacking force to send missiles within 
Mrs. Jack and Marjorie had made this their living room, and here were all the pretty treasures and knick-knacks which they had gathered on their travels. The old lady welcomed me warmly. Then Marjorie took her aside and told her something in whispers. I could guess what it was, but any doubts I might have had were dispelled when she came over and kissed me, and said, "'Indeed, I congratulate you with all my heart. You have won the best and sweetest and dearest girl that ever drew breath. I have been with her all my life, and I have not found a flaw in her yet, and I am glad that it is you whom she has chosen. Somehow I wished it from the first moment I saw you. That you may both be happy, I pray the good Lord God. And I know you will, for you are true, and Marjorie has a heart of gold. A heart of gold. Her words had given me more than pleasure, but the last phrase pulled my joy up short. A cold shiver ran through me. A golden man had been part of the prophecy of the mystery of the sea, and only a little while ago Gormala had in her vision seen Marjorie struggling in the tide race with a shroud in the air. I think Marjorie felt something of the same kind, for she looked at me anxiously and grew a little pale. She said nothing, however, and I thought it better to pass the matter by. Although Marjorie had heard the expression of the witch-woman's vision, and though I had told her of my first experience of the old rhyming prophecy, the former was at a time when neither I myself nor the whole mystery was of any special importance to her. She might not have remembered it. I trusted that this was so. However, we could not either of us be sad for long today. Our joy was too fresh to be dimmed by any thought of gloom, except momentarily as a mirror is by a passing breath. Tea in the old oak room was a delight, with the afternoon sun coming in slantwise through the narrow windows and falling in lines of light across the floor. Marjorie made the tea and served me, and each time I took anything from her hand, our fingers met, she no more than myself avoiding the touch. Then, leaving the old lady upstairs, she took me through the various rooms, and in her pretty, impulsive way she told me all the romances which she had already woven about them in her brain. She came and saw me off. With her kiss of good-bye on my lips, I rode back through the gloomy wood, feeling as proud and valiant as a knight of old. I found my way to Ellen, and went on the train to Aberdeen, for I felt it due to Adams that I should see him at once. It was impossible to write all I had to say, and besides, I wanted to retain his good will and to arrange for securing his aid if he would consent to do so under our altered conditions. I found him in his room, hard at work. He was writing something which I suppose he considered important, for he put it carefully away and locked his dispatch box before we began to talk. Of course, it might have been only his diplomatic habit, but he seemed grave over it. I entered at once on the matter between us, for I thought to get the disagreeable side over first, and let concessions and alterations follow. I am sorry, Sam. I shall not be able to help you with information regarding Miss Drake. Why? Haven't you heard from her? It is not that, but I am not free to do what you wish. Adams looked at me for a long time. Then he said quietly, I see. You have your orders. Well, I am sorry for it. It may bring dreadful harm to her, and I dare say to you, too, now. Say, old chap, 
Is that decision of yours final? The matter is more grave than I thought when I saw you last. We have had more information, and they are pressing us from Washington to take all precautions we can. Come, won't you help me help her? I can't, the way you say. Sam Adams, you know I would do anything I could for you, but in this matter I am pledged. I have been given a secret, and I must keep it honorably at all hazards. But look here. I am anxious all the same. Can't you trust me a little bit and tell me what to look for? I won't give you away, and I may be able to carry out your wishes as to helping to guard her, though I have to do it in my own way. He smiled, though very bitterly and ironically. I was glad to see the smile anyhow, for we were old and tried friends, and I should not like there to be any break between us. Besides, I wanted his help, his knowledge now, and his resources later on, if need should be. He was an official, and the matter was an official one, though his heart was in it. It was not as if his personal feelings or his honor had been involved. Well, he said, you have a fine gall anyhow. You refuse point-blank to give me the slightest help, though I ask it on all grounds, official for America, personal as I am in charge, and for the sake of your own girl. And then you expect me to tell you all I can. Well, look here. I'll tell you anything that will help you as soon as I know it, if you will keep me advised of exactly where you are, so, so that I may be able to find you if I wish. I told him heartily that I would keep him posted as to my movements. Then, as there was nothing to remain for, I said good-bye, a good-bye, I am glad to say, given and taken with our old heartiness. Before I went, I said, Sam, you know how a message can find me if there is anything you should think it well to tell me. To which he replied, All right, Archie. I'll remember. You understand that as I shall have to work this racket alone, I must do it in my own way. Otherwise, we shall have complications. But if there is anything I can do on your side, I shall do it all the same. You know how to reach me. If you send for me, I shall come any hour of the day or night. And say, old chap, I go healed. He pointed to his pistol pocket. Let me advise you to do the same just at present. I took his advice and bought in Aberdeen, before returning to Cruden, two of the finest revolvers I could get. One of them was made for a lady. The other I always carried myself from that day forward. End of chapter 22. Recording by James K. White. Chula Vista.